Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. My preliminary title was um, Living Life on Purpose. I have seen and been distressed for years about in particular the body of Christ, but just people in general, that we just sort of go with the flow, you know? There doesn't seem to be purpose to what we do or why we do it. I see it uh, when I taught school. I saw it with a lot of um, students. They didn't have a plan for their life. Now I realize when, you know, here in junior high or high school, that would be exceptional for high schooler to have a detailed plan for their life. But I've also seen people in their 30s and 40s that they just, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just kind of here doing whatever I'm doing, find whatever I can find. And basically life comes down to you get up in the morning, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV till you get tired, you go to bed, and you get up and you go again the next day. And there's not really a purpose to it. And for a natural man, that is, that's just kind of the natural way to live. For Christians, that should not be how we live. And let's start, uh, go to um, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 deals with, and we're not going to deal with all of it. We're going to read from verse 1 through about um, verse 10. This really deals with making the transition from the law and animal sacrifices over to the grace of God and having faith in Christ. Now, one thing you need to know, and and I don't really have time to go back and teach on this, but I'm going to set this out, and if you really have a problem with it and you want to ask me later, we can get into detailed discussion about it later. But... I have in the past, people have, you know, there's, there's a, at least a general kind of belief out there that under the old covenant, people got saved by keeping the law. And under the new covenant, people get saved by faith in Christ. And that is absolutely false. The, the, the purpose of the law was to make sinful or make sin seem sinful. Paul tells us that in the, in the letter to the Romans. And if, if it was the purpose, if, if people got saved by the law, what about all the people that lived before the law? Because the law of Moses didn't come in for a long time. From Adam to Moses, there was many, many, many years. Well, from Adam through today, it has always been by grace through faith. It's always been grace. It's God's grace because Paul tells us in Ephesians that Christ was slain from the foundation of the, of the world. Before the first Adam existed, before empty space existed, before time existed, the Godhead was all there was. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit was it. And in, the, in, in their group, they planned out everything that was going to happen. They said, well, let's create all of this. 
We're going to create Lucifer, he's going to fall. Then we're going to create the universe, and I don't know, he may have created the universe before Lucifer. I don't know the timing on that. The Bible's not clear. But Lucifer was created, the universe was created. They put man in the earth. Man fell. Jesus came, paid the price. It's always been salvation by God's grace, either looking forward to the Christ who was to come, Old Testament, or looking backward from our position, New Testament, that the Christ who has already come and been risen from the dead. The only difference between old and new is which direction were you looking? Are you exercising faith in the Christ, the Messiah who hasn't come yet? Or are you exercising faith in God's grace through the Messiah who's already come, gone to the cross, been buried, died, rose again, and sitting at the, the right hand of the Father? It's just been simply, here's the time division, and which side am I on? But the two covenants were very different. They functioned very differently. That's what Paul's addressing here in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's just read through this for a second. And I'm going to read, uh, we've got... New King James up here, but I want to read the Mount's translation, and they'll be pretty close. Verse 1, Hebrews 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect those who draw near by the same sacrifices which they offer continuously year after year. Now that is the essence of the law. You have the same sacrifices over and over and over and over again because you keep messing up over and over and over again. And so you have to keep adding sacrifices to it. Verse 2, For otherwise they would, have not, they would not have ceased being offered since the worshiper once cleansed would have no consciousness of sins. There is the whole problem that we as believers deal with. It's not our, it's not on a factual basis, are my sins forgiven? For my everyday life, the problem is, do I have a consciousness of sin or do I have a consciousness of righteousness? Because that will make, uh, the fact is, if you are in Christ, if you have exercised faith in what Jesus did at the cross, and you've said, Lord, I want to be part of your kingdom, the second you did that has nothing to do with how good, how bad you were or are. Jesus Christ takes you into his kingdom. Now, I don't have, here again, I don't have time to go into this, but if you go into the book of Revelation, there in, in chapter, I think it's in chapter 17, 18, talks about the white throne judgment. And when it talks about the white throne judgment, it says that everyone at that judgment seat is going to be judged out of two ways. The book of life or the books, plural, of works. But if you back up into Revelation chapter 3, when, when John was talking about the, the church at Sardis, Jesus makes the statement that it's not good if you get your 
your name obliterated or erased from the book of life. And I puzzled over that for a long time. How can you get your, your name erased from the book of life? And it finally, and, and if you want to disagree with me on this one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't preach it, but this is how, I wouldn't preach it hard, but this is how I see it. When Jesus went to the cross, he forgave every sin. I'm talking about the sin of mankind. Angels did not have a right to sin. When an angel sins, they fall. They're fallen for all eternity. There is no hope of redemption. They cannot be saved, ever. Mankind, different story. God said, I'm coming and I'm going to take on a body and I'm going to live the perfect life and I will go pay the price for mankind's sin. Well, if Jesus paid the price for every sin, then how does anybody ever go to hell? On what basis does a just God send someone to hell if Jesus paid the price for every sin? There is only one way. And you see it reflected in Revelation. When Jesus came out of the grave, every person that has ever lived, their names were all written in the book of life. But then every one of us, and this is part of what it talks about, that Jesus went and preached to captivity, those that had died prior to Jesus' resurrection, they were held in an upper chamber of hell called paradise. And he went and preached, and those that had, had exercised faith in the coming Messiah, they were safe. They were in paradise. Those that had not exercised faith in the coming Messiah, their names had been erased and obliterated out of the book of life. Because they chose to not take what Jesus offered, even though it, was, it, it, it wasn't a real firm offer. They didn't know it was Jesus, because he hadn't come yet. They didn't know exactly how it was going to work. Those that lived before the law had a very, very vague picture of the Messiah that was to come. But all they had to have was a glimpse that there's a Messiah coming and he's going to pay the price. And if they said, that's where I'm putting myself, that was enough because that's all they had to operate on. And their name would have been written in the Lamb's book of life. But if they said, no, I don't believe that, I got to get there on my own. Then they made the choice to be judged by their works, by their good works. And God Race their name from the book of life. And when it comes to that white throne judgment, he goes to the books of works and he says, okay, let's see how you stack up. And they will list all of the things that they did and that look at the motivation behind all of it and none of it will mean a thing. And God will say, because you rejected Jesus. Now for us, it's a much different picture. We have been presented with the gospel. We know who Jesus is. We know that, he, that, that the, the story, that he came, he died for our sins. He, he was buried and he arose. And when he arose, 
all the sins were forgiven. And we can accept that or reject that. And there's virtually no one on planet Earth right now that hasn't heard that message. There may be a few, but it's a very few. With modern technology, the message of the gospel has gone out all over the world. And if they hear that message and they say, no, no other person can, can pay the price for my sin, I'm, I'm going to go on my own works, then their names get erased from the book of life and they'll be judged out of the book of works. And their works won't match up. They won't measure up. And they will have to go to hell, not because of their sins, plural, but because of one sin, the sin of rejecting Christ. They said no, so God gave them the choice, because He does give us the choice. He gives us free will. He says, you can choose hell, heaven, me, Lucifer. It's that simple. You choose. But for us as believers... Once I choose Christ, what now? Do I just, and I'll, I'll, let me give you my testimony. I grew up Southern Baptist. Thank God for the Southern Baptist. You know, there's more Baptists than there are people. Because I'm on the roll of at least three, four different Southern Baptist churches because that's how many I was a member of. And once you're on the roll, you don't ever come off the roll. I don't care how long you've been dead. You're still there. <coughs> but the church I was raised in, all I ever heard, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And at eight years old, I said, okay. And I had a really rough life, you know. The sins of an eight-year-old are pretty black. But it was enough. I realized I needed a Savior. So I went forward at youth camp, I got saved, and then it was like, okay, what now? Well, you just live the best you can, you know. And if you have problems... You need to come down front and rededicate. You need to pray harder. You need to read more scripture. Now, let me just assert it. We all need to pray more. We all need to read scripture more. But that's not how you get the victorious life. The key to living the victorious life is right there at the end of, of verse 2. If we keep trying to offer up sacrifices, then we will continually have a consciousness of sin. Instead of preaching to ourselves and saying, I don't have sin. Well, brother, what about this morning? What about that thought you had? What about what you said to that person yesterday? What about the actions? You had a thought and you followed through on those actions. Well, that's not the real me. That's the carnal me acting out of my flesh, and it's real, and there are prices to pay for those things. You mess up, there's going to be a price in this earth. I guarantee you, I go home and tell my, say the certain words to my wife, there's going to be a price to pay. I may not, you know, I may be limping come morning. Because she knows exactly where to hit. There are consequences to sin. But that sin cannot penetrate to the real me. The real me is perfect, reborn, every day. Why? Because Jesus is eternal, my spirit is eternal. That's why Paul says in Ephesians that we are seated with him in heavenly places. 
that part of me, the real me, that's seated with Christ in heavenly places is an eternal being who lives in eternity outside of time. And so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't exist in this sinful world. Now, my, the real me is on the inside of me, which is part of the spirit, the mystery of the spirit. How can I be here and be there at the same time? Well, the only thing I can think is the here and the there are the same place. Well, I don't understand how that can be. Well, join the club. I don't understand how you can have three gods in one. I don't understand how you can be in the spirit and, and yet be on the earth. Paul himself said, I had a vision and I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body. I don't really know. It didn't make a lot of sense. Well, if Paul couldn't understand it, no hope for the rest of us. Believe me. But we have to get rid of this consciousness of sin. Let's go to verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sons year after year, or sins, excuse me. There's a reminder of our sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Now that's an odd thing to say about God. God, you did not um, desire sacrifice and offering, and yet you gave Moses the law, which had more sacrifices and more offerings than I can even recount. If he doesn't desire sacrifice and offerings, why does he give us the law? Because it's necessary. If I can't convince you that you're a sinner, you'll never reach out for a savior. If I can't convince you you're drowning, you won't reach for the rope to pull you into shore. You'll just keep trying. Well, you know, I'm here. I just have to try harder. Well, that works till you go under and you don't have enough strength to come back up. Well, he didn't desire um, sacrifice and offering, but a body you prepared for me. You did not take pleasure in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, behold, I, ha I have come the scroll of the book. It was written about me to do your will, O God. That's the key right there. Instead of me being conscious of my sentence and my sinfulness, my failures and my faults, I need to have one goal in life. God, what is your will for me right now and going forward? I need to forget about my sins. Well, brother, if you just forget about your sins, people will just sin. You'll give people a license to sin. People sin with or without license. And people sin no matter what. In fact, if you look at sin as a failure to meet God's standard, we never get out of sin. Because I can never reach His standard. I can't do anything perfectly. I screw up everything I put my hand to. I always fall short. Always will fall short. There's no help of not falling short. So i got to get over that. I mean, it's like saying, well, you know, um, Jerry and I, when we were young, now, you know, if we completed in, competed in the long jump today, you know, I, I think I could win because I can jump about six inches and he can only go about five. 
But, you know, if we were both athletes in high school or college, well, you know, I jumped about uh, 19 feet in high school. That's pretty good for a high schooler. Not bad. But you know what? If the chasm's a mile and a half, and Jerry can, I can look at Jerry and say, hey, you, you only jumped 16, 17 feet. I'm much better than you. We're both going to end up at the bottom of the chasm. We can't even come close to making it. Then why argue about who's the better? But I got farther out. I died here. You died back there. I'm much better than you. We're both dead. It doesn't matter how far you get. You can't make it to the other side. So give up. Quit worrying about the fact that you can't do what God asked you to do. If you could do what God asked you to do, you wouldn't need God. He asked us to do things that are impossible. Why? So that when it gets done, we can't pound ourselves on the chest and say, hey, look what I did. You know, I've driven across some long bridges. I've never, now used to, to you know, we had to play a game when I was little. When you went across the bridge, you had to pick your feet up off the car, off the floorboard. Why? Because you didn't want the car to press down too hard on the bridge. You might collapse the bridge. Now, it was a fun game. And for kids, it's like, okay, we'll pull our feet up. The car was still carrying the load, whether my feet were on the floorboard or not. Well, I just got to relax and lay back and let God carry the load. Once I find out what his will, that's Jesus set this example for us. The only thing he worried about, in fact, if you drop down to um, verse 9, it says, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. That's the whole purpose that Jesus came into the earth. That's all he ever had on his mind. His mind was not set on, well, you know, it's morning. we got to find some place to get breakfast. Jesus came out of sleep, and he slept just like us. He was tired just like us. He got up. He, I don't want to burst your bubble, but when he got up, he had to go to the bathroom. First thing, just like us. He had to eat. He had to drink. He had to do all of these bodily functions, had all of these human needs because he was human. But when he got up, his first thought was not, where am I going to get breakfast? Where's the water jug? Where's this? Where am I going to find some money to get lunch today? His first thought was, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What's my tasks for today? And what do I do to, need, what do, I do to get ready to meet those needs? And he stayed in constant fellowship with the Father to the point where he said in the Gospels, I don't say anything that God didn't tell me to say, and I don't do anything that God doesn't show me to do. That's how he walked out a perfect life. He constantly was seeking after God's will. Well, if it worked for him, it works for us. Our question ought to be, Lord, what is your will? Now, I need your will for the next half hour, the next hour, the next day, the next two weeks. Are there things I need to start preparing for right now for 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road? You need to get before God about that. You need, now, there, are, there, are, there is God's general will. 
I don't have to ask God and pray for hours and hours whether I should stay married to my wife. Whether I should love my wife. I know that one. I can read Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's just, I don't, if, if I ask God that, then God ought to be smacking me in the back of the head saying, read my book. Well, if I've never read it, and I'm not familiar with it, I don't even know the general will of God, let alone my, His specific will for me. But He has specific things for me to do that no one else is called to do. And I need to know what those things are because I can't walk in His will if I don't know what His will is. That's part of the work. But a big part, big part of that is I have to get rid of this consciousness of sin so that I can realize that I have the qualifications to do what He's told me to do. Because I tell you, as long as I stay conscious of sin... I can't do it. I can't do anything. Well, he says in his word to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, I can't lay hands on the sick. Who am I? I don't have an anointing. I'm not a pastor. I did pastor once, but I'm not pastoring now. I did this, but I fell here. I'm, I've never had a prayer life, so I can't, I don't have an anointing. You know, Brother Hagin, when he prayed for people, he had a tangible anointing. I've never had a tangible anointing, so I can't do that. The only reason I would ever think that is because I am conscious of my faults, not his strength. And I'll give you a great example of it. Something that a lot of us say, I want to live my life camped out at the foot of the cross. Is that a good thing to do? That depends. When you live your life camped out at the foot of the cross, when you look up at the cross, what do you see? Oh, brother, I see how sinful I am. I see the sacrifice that Jesus had to give up. I see how what the beating that he had to take and the blood that he had to shed because I'm so rotten and so nasty and so sinful. I can't tell you how many people I've met and tried to minister to that that's all they ever saw at the cross was how bad they were and the sacrifice that Jesus gave for them. Now that's not bad. But if that's where you stay, you will never accomplish anything. Because all you see is how bad and rotten you are. When you look at the cross, you only should see one thing. The power of the blood of Jesus. His blood is more powerful than my sin. His blood is more powerful than my failures. His blood is more powerful than my shortcomings. I don't have a tangible anointing. Mark 16 doesn't say lay hands on the sick if you can feel something in your hands. It says lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Well, brother, what if I lay hands on the sick and they die? So what? It doesn't say lay hands on the sick that you know they only have a cold and they're going to get better in a week. It says lay hands on the sick. It's not your job to get them healed. It's your job to lay hands. And then turn it over to God. Walk away and quit worrying about it. But if you have a consciousness of sin and how worthless you are and how... Uh, uh, 
ineffective you are, how weak you are, you will never be able to do any of it because why would I do that? It's not going to do anything. Well, that kind of faith, yeah, it probably won't do much. But if you lay hands on the sick knowing that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that created the entire universe, the Holy Spirit that took Jesus when He was sin itself and broke that sin off Him and raised Him from the dead and made Him holy and righteous once more. That same Holy Spirit's living on the inside of you the same way He lived on, on the inside of Jesus. Remember, Jesus did not do one miracle before he was baptized in the Jordan River by John. For Jesus to fulfill his ministry, he had to have the baptism of the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. Oh, but he was the second person of the Godhead. He didn't do anything by that power. He was the second person of the Godhead. He had the right to do anything on his own as a second person of the Godhead. But he lived as if he was just a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like we are. And everything that was done was done by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. And when he tells us to do something, if we will do it, he will show up. But we have to be bold to do that. It takes a boldness, and you can never be bold if you're so conscious, more conscious of your sin than you are of your righteousness. Amen? Now, go back to um, 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23. You're all familiar with this story. This is the story of Saul. God, you know, the Israelites thought, we want a king. We want a king. God said, you don't need a king. We want a king. Everybody else got a king, Dad. How come I can't have a king? Well, finally, God said, okay, you want a king? I'm telling you, you're not going to like it when you get him. He's going to beat you. He's going to take your money. He's going to rule over you hard. But we want one. Everybody else has got one. Okay, take one. Let's pick Saul. Saul be your king. And Saul was a mess. Well, yeah, but David came along. David was as messed up as Saul was. The only difference was David was quick to repent when God brought his sin to him. Saul wasn't. And in this story, in, in 1 Samuel 15, God, through Samuel, told Saul, you go to the um, Amalekites, they have offended me, and I want them dead. I want all of them dead. I want the king dead. I want all of the men dead. I want the women dead. I want the kids dead. I want you to kill the dogs. I want you to kill the sheep, the cows. You kill the rats. I don't want anything coming out of that city. It's all dead. That's it. Kill them all. Well, brother, that sounds pretty harsh. Yeah. And if I was, unless you're God, I would be real careful about giving orders like that. But God is still righteous. And I do know just from other, other circumstances that God had given them chances to repent. And they had refused repentance. And there comes a time, if you re refuse to repent long enough, God's judgment's going to fall. And it's going to fall. And when it falls, it falls hard. But Saul went. Saul killed most. But he brought Agag back. 
And they brought some of the sheep back. And they brought some of the cattle back. And Samuel confronted Saul in, in, in 1 Samuel 15. And he said, Saul, why did you do this? Did I not tell you to kill them all? In fact, Samuel, boy, you, you think, you know, pastors like me are rough? You know what Samuel did with Agag? He whipped out his sword right in front of Saul and whacked his head off. Now, I've chewed some people out in my ministry times. I've gotten a little angry and gotten a little pointed and talked rough to people. I've never cut anybody's head off. But Samuel whacked his head off. And he said, Saul, you have screwed up and you are going to lose your kingdom now. God's taken it away from you. And he's going to give it to another. And Saul begged for forgiveness. But in 1 Samuel 20, 15, 22, and 23, this is what Samuel said to Saul. Because Samuel, part of Samuel's excuse was, well, I brought all this stuff back so we could sacrifice it to God. We could go through and sacrifice all of these, these cattle and all this sheep. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Samuel or Saul did not get in trouble because of his actions per se. He got in trouble because God said, do it my way, and Samuel thought he worked for Ford and had a better idea. And when God says, I want you to do something, and I want you to do it this way, don't think, well, yeah, but it'll work just as easily here, and it'd be a whole lot easier if I did it this way. It'd be a lot more impressive if I did it this way. Just do it God's way. Because obeying Him is a lot better than disobeying Him and then coming back and saying, God, forgive me. Now, His forgiveness is there, always there. When we mess up, He's the first. That's why I've said it a million times and I'll say it a million more. 1 John 1, 9 ought to be a scripture that you run to on a daily basis. When you mess up, you need to get before God and say, Lord, I screwed up one more time. Forgive me. And it says that He is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not so we can stand holy before Him, but so that we can serve Him, so that we know we have a consciousness that that sin is now behind me. That sin has already been forgiven. It was forgiven at the cross. Well, then why do I have to ask forgiveness? Because you need to get it behind you. Jesus has already put it as far as the east is from the west. You can't get any farther away than that. But it will affect you until you bring it up to him and say, I want to be cleansed from this. And he'll say, hey, no problem. You are. I didn't just now cleanse you. You've been cleansed since I came out of the grave. Well, that was before I was born. Yeah. Your problem is not that you sin, your problem is that you think that's all there is to you. When God says, no, you're greater than your sin. You're greater than your sins, plural. You have to depend on who you are in me and look to me 
as your, your head and look to me as the one who is empowering you. And believe me when I say you are holy and you are righteous. Well, I don't feel very holy and righteous. Who said anything about feelings? You're probably not going to feel holy and righteous right after you really just screwed up big time. Well, you have to get past that feeling, and sometimes it's not easy to get past those feelings. I'll be honest with you. Overcoming your emotions is probably one of the hardest battles you will ever fight in your life. But when you finally master them, oh, there is a freedom that you can walk in. When you finally figure out that my ideas don't count, who cares what I think? If it's not the Word, if it's not God's will, then it doesn't amount to anything. Just get in His Word and find out what He wants you to do. And then realize if He asks you to do it, you can do it. And then <clears throat> this one just blew my mind. Go to Exodus 9. If you think you, you know, I don't know that God can use me. I saw this verse in a very different light. This is talking about when um, <clears throat> Moses was coming before Pharaoh in Exodus 9. We're going to look at 16, verse 16 through 18. Moses said that some of the plagues had already fallen. And Moses had, had come and was telling Pharaoh, more things are coming. But in verse 16, this is God talking to Pharaoh about Pharaoh. He says, but indeed, for this purpose, I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, let me be honest with you. When I've read that, I've connected that with verse 17, which it is connected. It's the very next verse. very next verse says, as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. But if you look at verse 16 just by itself, God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name might be declared in all the earth. Pharaoh had a choice. He did not have to resist God and did not have to have the plagues fall. When God first approached Pharaoh through Moses, if Pharaoh had said, you're right, Moses, your God is the God, and I will let his people go, what do you need? God would have exalted Pharaoh. God would have said, good job. I'm going to brag on you now. He would have blessed Pharaoh. He would have exalted Pharaoh. He would have used Pharaoh. And, and all of Egypt would have been blessed abundantly so that they could have sown into Israel. And Israel could have gone on right then without any plagues. But Pharaoh said, no. This is how it is. If I give up my slaves, I don't have a workforce. And if I don't have a workforce, I don't get any work done. And we need some stuff built. So I can't let you go. I don't care who your God is. I'm not going to let you go. And every time God judged him, he got a little harder and dug in a little more and dug in a little more. Now, I know none of you are stubborn like me. 
But when somebody pushes me, I start digging my feet in. And they push it a little harder and I spread them out. And I dig in a little more. And the harder you push me, the more I resist. I told it to my kids years ago. I told it to my wife. I tell it to anybody that has a relationship with me. Ask me anything, I'll, I'll, I'll lasso the moon and try to drag it down if I can. But you tell me I have to do something? Boy, there's something that rises up in me and says, well, just see. That's my flesh. And when God says, this is how it has to be done, and you look at it and say, but God, if we do it that way, we're going to lose half our workforce. They're going to go. God says, do I care? I mean, Gideon came up with thousands of soldiers. And God said, this is not right. Get rid of a bunch of them. And I know Gideon scratched his head and thought, wait a minute. We're going into war. I want all the soldiers I can get. And I want them all armed real well. And God said, I don't. And God kept whittling and whittling and whittling until he got 300 men. And then they went against thousands with 300. And God got a lot of glory out of it. Was it the rational, right way to do it? No, it was absolutely a stupid way to do it. You don't whittle down to a platoon and say, okay, here's an army. Here's a division over here. Got about 10,000 guys. And we're going to give you about 40. Go get them. I don't, if I'm one of the 40, I'm going to look at that division and I'm going to think, yeah, right. You coming with me? Well, if it's God coming with me, then let's go. But we look at situations with our natural mind and we think it can't work. And so we say, no. And God has to judge us when, when He says, go do it this way, and we say, no, I can't do that. Paul looked at this. Turn over to Philippians. And I'm going to try to close this up real soon. And we'll have to take this up next week to finish it. <clears throat> but in Philippians chapter 3, Paul goes through his life under the law as a Pharisee, and then he talks about his life um, after he got saved. Starting in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he said, But what things were gained to me, this was before he got born again, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness which is from God by faith. Do you know, just hold your place there, when you exercise faith in something, that usually means that you don't have any tangible evidence that that's true. In fact, my experience has been, when God says you're going to have to exercise faith, most of my circumstances say, no, it's not true. So if I'm exercising faith for righteousness then I probably what's right in front of my eyes is you're an unrighteous loser. This is Paul. And I have no doubt, Paul's no different than I was. This is Paul saying the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul had times when his unrighteousness was right in front of his eyes. 
his failures, his screw-ups, his sin. And yet he had to say, nope, that's not the real me. Sorry. I am the righteousness of God in in Christ. I know he believed that because he wrote it a bunch of times. But why does he do that? Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, I'm going to take issue with New King James and King James there. The, the word there that's translated sufferings is the Greek word pathema, where we get our English word passion. Now, the sufferings of Christ, the passion of Christ, is Him dying at the cross. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think verse 10 would be better read this way. Or let's just say it's an alternate way of reading it. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His passion. I need to make God's passion my passion. What is God passionate about in His life? What's at the foremost of His thought? That's what needs to be my passion. That's what needs to be the emphasis of my life. Not what I want to do. If I just do what I want to do, I'm going to sit around most of the time. Let's have ice cream for three meals a day. We don't need to exercise. I certainly don't need to go to work because I used to work and I didn't like working. I'd rather sleep late, watch a little TV and go to bed early. It feels good. Only problem is you don't get a paycheck that way. And when you don't get a paycheck, you end up living in a cardboard box. Well, I'm going to believe for God to bring money to me. Yeah, you can live in faith if you want to, but I'm going to go get a job. In fact, it reminds me, I had a pastor, when we were in Tulsa, one of his parishioners came to him. And brother, you preach prosperity all the time. And I've been praying hard for God to bless me financially. And I just keep getting job offers and never get any money. <clears throat> and the pastor just, he, you know, he wanted to pick up, he, he, this guy had a um, big lump of lead on his desk. And he wanted to take that, he had that lead there so that when people said, you know, when he asked somebody to do something, they said, well, I'm not sure if I feel lead. He'd say, well, here. He'd hand it out to him. It's all the lead you need to feel. I ask you, your church needs you to do it. You don't have to feel lead, just do it. Do something. But he won't take that lead and smack the guy upside the head. You want God to prosper, you're probably going to have to work. That's how the system works. But once you do work, you can believe for promotions, you can believe for God to bless you, you can believe for all of that. But we need to be have the passions, the same passion that Jesus has. And then let's read on with uh, verse 12. This is how he does that. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you want to know the secret of being a success? Forget about your past. It's dead. It's gone. It can't do anything for you. Whether it was a disaster or a success, 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't exist anymore. The only thing that exists is this time and what you're pressing towards. And that is where I got the key for this, living on purpose. I have to have a purpose. I have to have a goal that I'm pressing towards. If I don't have a goal that I'm pressing towards, what am I doing? I'm just drifting with the wind wherever the current takes me. And I've known that. We used to call them in Tulsa, we called them cruisomatics instead of charismatics. They'd cruise from this church and they'd plant there for a couple of weeks and then they'd go to another church. Well, I'm, I don't really get planted in a church. I just go wherever God leads me. You read on in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some and more as the day approaches. We get closer to God's return. You need to be here more. Well, brother, I just don't get very blessed at church. Well, bless your heart. Let me just get pointed with you. If you've said that, then I'm going to be nice. If you've said that, you're wrong. Coming to church ain't about you getting blessed. It's about you finding out what God wants you to do and plugging in and getting busy and doing the work of the kingdom. Well, I just don't know what God wants me to do. Just find something to do. Start somewhere. You know, the first job I had, I didn't really like it. It was picking peaches. It was hard work. But you know what? Once I did that for a summer, next summer somebody offered me an easier job. And then when I grew up, I got to work under a bunch of engineers. And I worked in a dirty, nasty lab. We, we melted, literally melted rock. I had a quarter inch of steel between me and 3,000 degree molten white hot rock. And the, while I lived there, one of our furnaces exploded and killed a guy right across the street from me. And I'm making 130 bucks a week and risking my life on a daily basis to do it. And thought, wow, I got a paycheck. But you know what? I didn't stay at that job. I got promoted. I went and got some schooling. I got better jobs and better jobs and better jobs. And, I, and then eventually I got realized that it wasn't just about me. And I figured out I needed to get into the Bible. And I started asking God what he wanted me to do. And he said, well, all this stuff that you've trained for and planned for, forget that. <laughs> I didn't mean anything. Here's what I want you to do. And then I started doing that. It's all about figuring out what God wants you to do and forgetting that past and pressing on because there's more to life than this life. Amen. And let me just let me throw this out there and then we'll we'll go on and finish this next week. There's two two places we're going to start with next week. One is Hebrews 11. Everybody knows it. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 2 is probably one of the worst translations in the, in the King James and most translations. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The Greek word there for worlds doesn't mean planet. It's the word aeon where we get the word age. In fact, almost everywhere else. In the New Testament, with very few exceptions, that word is translated age or something about a time period. And Hebrews 11 is about the, the, the heroes of faith. So the point here, and we'll get into this more detail, 
The point here is that all of the list of men and women in Hebrews 11, they made the hall of fame for faith because they got a word from God and they framed their world, they framed their age by that one word. Would to God we could have that much sense. God, give me a vision of what you want me to do and I will dedicate my life to doing that. We'd be in the heroes of faith. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about, we talked earlier about the white throne judgment. As believers, we're going to be at the white throne judgment, but our names are in the book of life. So we're in the white throne judgment. Every human being is going to be divided. There's going to be the goats and there's going to be the sheep. The sheep are over here. They've already been judged. They've been judged sheep. They're part of the family. The goats, in one sense, they've already been judged, but they've decided they want to get on their good works, so God's going to go through those books of works, and they're not going to come up very well. But as Christians, we're going to be, we're going to be uh, presented before the, the judgment seat of Christ. Not the white throne judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema. We have a Bema in our world today. You see it every four years. It's where they present the trophies at the Olympics. That is the Bema seat. And you have the guy that gets the gold, one that gets the bronze, one that gets the silver. That's the, the reward for winning the race. The Bema seat of Christ is actually going to, we're going to appear there. But it's not a place where God decides whether we go to heaven or we go to hell. You've already earned your way into heaven by accepting Christ. We didn't earn it, but you know what I mean. That's already been decided. But once you get there, there are rewards. And the Bema seat of Christ, that's what 1 Corinthians 3 says, that everyone's work will be tested. And it's going to be tested by fire. And some will be Gold, silver, and precious stone, and some will be wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble, when it gets judged by fire, it burns up, there's nothing left. Those are the works you do out of the flesh. And what's, what, what do I mean by that? Pick on Jerry again. Jerry and I are sitting right next to each other, offering plate goes by. <clears throat> I pull out a check for $1,000, look at Jerry and say, Look at here. Pulled it up and dropped in the offering plate. Jerry pulls out a dollar bill when that's his last dollar bill. And he drops it in, but he doesn't let me see what he's dropping in. Could have been a hundred. Could have been a roll of hundreds. I don't know. He just puts it in, but he puts it in by faith. I gave a thousand times more than he gave. Mine's wood, hay, and stubble. His is gold. That's why Jesus looked at the woman who gave the widow's mite gave a couple of pennies, and he said, she's given more than all the rest. Why? Because she gave it in faith. She did it in response to what, Jesus, to what God told her to do. That's the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And it will survive that testing of fire, and those will be our, award, our rewards once we get to heaven. Heaven is not everybody's floating around on a, you know, flowery beds of ease not floating around on clouds, doing nothing, strumming harps, just sitting. Heaven's going to be like Eden. It's going to be jobs to do, 
things to do, grow, you know, we're going to have bodies. You'll still eat, you'll still do things. But some people will have responsibilities and some won't. That's your reward. And the other part of your reward is who do you bring with you? That's the most important. Those are the, the, the jewels in your crown. We all will have crowns. If I influenced a lot of people and I brought a lot with me, we'll have a lot of jewels. That represents the people who are there because of my influence of life. If I just you know, kept my light hidden in a bushel basket and nobody ever knew I was a Christian, I'll have a crown. I'll be in heaven. I mean, heaven's heaven, whether you have any rewards or not. It's not going to be bad. But I want to get there with a full reward. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.